Find your Bible, open it to Psalms 133. It's going to be our preaching text for today. Give you just a moment to find that. Quickly tell you, we are glad to be here. We were concerned about making it today, as most of you are aware. There's been uh, terrible weather all the way across the Midwest, actually all the way up to Wisconsin, down to about Houston, Texas, and Kansas City seemed to be about the epicenter of all these storms that were going on yesterday. And we were getting a late flight since I had a wedding and uh, uh, late yesterday afternoon, last flight out of Kansas City uh, to Albuquerque via going through Houston. And so um, I tell you, it moved us to pray faithfully. And I know some of you are praying with us and uh, we're here <laughs> and we're glad to be here. We've looked forward to preaching to you today. We've got a big day, going to have a meet and greet after this is over. If we hadn't had a chance to meet you, I want you to come and introduce yourself to Mary and I. We look forward to getting to know you better. And uh, also, then we, uh, we're going to meet with the transition committee at 3. Then we've got an all-church meeting at 5. Uh, and after that, I'm taking a retreat for a little while. So uh, anyhow, it's going to be a big day. You know, I want to preach on unity in the church this morning. As I reflect over the really one of the more critical factors uh, in growing a church is that the church must be unified where God's people operate in one heart, mind, and spirit. Churches that prevail unified are generally healthy churches. Conversely, when there is conflict, tensions, unresolved issues, bitterness, and unforgiveness, then you can mark it down, you can write on the wall, you can etch it in stone. There will soon, it will soon take its toll on the church. I think about the church, Lenexa Baptist, that I pastored for 26 years. In those formative years, there was a lot of unresolved issues, that things that were unsettled, as, uh, uh, as you would expect in a new church start. But uh, when those things are unsettled and you have those um, uh, things where people are jockeying for position or strong personalities want to control the church uh, that have some unresolved theological issues that had to be dealt with. And all of these things that were really uh, not settled caused a tremendous tension in the church. And even though it wasn't obvious, uh, perhaps at first, you peel that onion back very far and you could smell the problem. It would eventually come to a head, and I shared with you as uh, about the third year I was pastoring there, ended up... Uh, in April of uh, 93, and we lost about half the church, and, uh, but we survived uh, by the grace of God. Uh, we, uh, amidst the fray and false accusations and the gossip and brutal aftermath, but here's what happened. Finally, the dissenters and the instigators were gone, and we began to do really what I would call a restart, <laughs> and we began to build back with one uh, a unity and oneness of heart, cohesiveness, a sweet spirit. And indeed, uh, we were able to see the church go from then under 100 members uh, to 6,000 members when we would retire. So what dramatically changed and what was the difference? Well, it wasn't me. They had the same pastor before. I, 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 I know I learned some things through the process. Um, uh, but I tell you, after it, I was pretty much a, a wounded warrior. But I had survived the onslaught of the enemy. There was a new peace, a new hope and really a much welcome unity in the church. One time Winston Churchill would say, when there is no enemy within, the enemies without cannot hurt you. And let me assure you, the problem of unity or lack thereof 
is uh, not an un, uh, uncommon problem in church life. Even go all the way back to the New Testament, we find in most of these New Testament churches, there's issues going on. I, I think about the church at Corinth. You remember in, in chapter 1, uh, the Apostle Paul would uh, mention or address these factions in the church. He says, you know, we've got these problems that some have an allegiance to Peter and some Apollos and some to me. And he's saying these things are not good. There's not, it's not good to be divided. It's not good not to be uh, unified. Then you move over to the church at Galatia and you've got this theological issue going on with the Judaizers advocating that you've got to really be a converted Jew and uh, plus believe in Jesus and follow all the Jewish rituals and rites to really be a believer. And Paul would say, no, that's a false gospel. Uh, and um, you just continue on believing as I preach to you. And that is justification by faith and faith alone. Even the book of Philippians, one of my favorite epistles, we see that there's some strife in that local church. You got some strong personalities who are uh, having issues, and, and Paul would uh, commend the yoke fella to come and uh, to approach them and resolve this issue and get unified in the church and settle the differences and bring unity back. And, and, and he said, if we don't, we can't advance the gospel as we should. Matter of fact, six times in the first chapter of Philippians, he talks about the gospel and how they must have a unified front. And it's always true to fulfill the mission of the church. We've got to be together with a unified heart. Well, I've chosen a text out of the book of Psalms 133. David addresses the critical nature of unity. And he says it's to be protected, it's to be pursued, and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together, living with each other with a unified heart, a unified mind, and a unified mission. So please stand on to reading God's Word this morning, church. I'm going to read three verses. I mean, how long could this take? And uh, we'll unpack these truths, and we'll uh, certainly appeal to your heart today. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Father, fill me with your spirit today. Help me to speak these things that you've laid on my heart from this text. I pray I could convey it in a right, in a meaningful way to those who hear. This is your time. This is your church. We come today to worship you and serve you. So help me in every way, and I pray this message will be well received and that you'd be honored in it. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Four things I notice in the text I want you to see with me, and the first is this, what I'm calling the pursuit of unity. The pursuit of unity. This psalm is a psalm of ascent. As you know, Psalms 120 through 120, uh, 34 are 15 different Psalms of Ascent that were sung as the people would make their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to celebrate one of the religious feasts of Judaism. Some commentators argued that these 15 Psalms of Ascent were sung on the 15 steps up to the temple complex. But whatever the message is clear and compelling, as David would say, how good and pleasant it is when God's people get along, 
when their differences are dissolved, when personal preferences are forgotten, where there's love and forgiveness, and it wins out over one's personal preferences. So what, as we pursue this unity, I I, I thought of three things that come to mind that really uh, generally unite people. And the first under A is a common devotion. A common devotion. This Psalm of Ascent, people are coming together from the villages and hamlets all over the nation of Israel, and they have one synchronized purpose, and that is this. They have a devotion to God. They have a common faith in Jehovah God. And that's what unites us as believers. We've experienced the grace of God, and he has translated us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us uh, into the kingdom of his dear son. That's what fellowship is. That word koinonia means we have things in common. We are partners in this thing together. We're partners uh, led by the Lord Jesus Christ, and to him we owe our total devotion. Now, can I tell you, the nation will continue to be polarized. I'm always going to be red states and blue states, political differences, philosophical differences, environmental differences. All of these things are really allegiances to various convictions. Sometimes what uh, uh, connects people is a, a commitment to an institution, a university, a professional sports team. But that trait unites varying groups because they have a devotion. They have this same affinity and loyalty, and so it is with us. We have a heart devotion. We come to church because we are like-minded in this thing together. We're people of faith. We're a society of the twice-born folks who now have a devoted heart to God. Jesus would say this, he who is not for us is against us. Listen, the church is to stay unified, but will always take a primary and fundamental love for God that results in an unconditional love for each other. Jesus walks out of the upper room the night before he would be crucified, headed towards the Kidron Valley, and he would say, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you love one another. What unites us? It's a common devotion. Let me move quickly. Sometimes it's not a common devotion. It's a common danger. Believe me, the first century church was living in constant danger from religious zealots to political adversaries. Uh, Just last year, Mary and I had the privilege of being in Rome, and we, we walked by the Mamertine prison where the Apostle Paul would spend his last days and he would be executed at the hands of Nero, as you, as you well know. A little earlier, we, we were up in Sicily. And there, the Apostle Paul had come there as well. And he had met with those first century believers in the catacombs where the believers worshiped clandestinely because of their constant fear and danger. But the persecuted church is certainly more than a first century phenomenon. It's so true today in countries like Iran and Afghanistan and Turkey and Yemen and Laos, North Korea, China, Syria, on and on and on. According to the Christian Post, this previous year, 90,000 Christians were killed, one every six minutes, facing martyrdom. And certainly that's just one facet of persecution because many others were displaced and attacked and harassed and abused. 
And they face constant hardship because of their faith. Here's what I want you to know with me, church. When there's imminent danger, the church loses all its pettiness. Things that are insignificant or marginal get swallowed up in a threat of danger. Honestly, do you think for a minute the persecuted church argues about worship styles or service times or curriculum or when vacation Bible school is going to start or any other event as far as that goes? Of course they don't because they got real problems on their hand. You think with me just a moment how this imminent danger brings people together. Think about September 11, 2001, the attack on America. These vast ideological differences between Republicans and Democrats were suddenly swallowed up in a common patriotism like I have never seen before. You remember there were flags waving. Believe me, there was no one taking a knee during the national anthem. The only time we were taking a knee was to call out to God. And people were flocking to churches to pray, and our nation was together. Matter of fact, President Bush's approval rating skyrocketed to over 90% overnight. Why? Because we had a common tie, a common enemy, a common concern, and this danger galvanized us. Sometimes a common devotion, sometimes a common danger. The third thing I believe that brings people together is a common dream. And really, David is expressing his dream here for his own nation, God's people coming together. He sees them coming to worship the Lord, dwelling together in unity. And how beautiful it is, he says. Can I tell you, a common vision unites people together. That's the reason it's so critical when a new pastor shows up for Hoffmantown Church that God has given him a vision for this church, a God-given dream, how things should be, how things ought to be, how things can be, and indeed developing strategies to accomplish that. Certainly we've seen how this country can change with one man's dreams and how the nation slowly was galvanized because of the dream that was articulated by Martin Luther King Jr. on August 8, 1963. He would stand at the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. and say, I've got a dream, you remember it, a dream rooted in the American dream that one day this nation will rise up and live up to its creed to hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And no longer will a man be judged by the color of his skin, but instead by the content of his heart. It galvanized an entire movement, something that needed to happen because a man said, I've got a dream. You know what the Bible says in Proverbs 29, 18? It says, without a vision, the people cast off restraint. You see, it's true in the church where the dream dies and the vision vanishes and the church lives without direction. You will see, soon see people scattered, gone, not findable. They're doing their own thing. But when someone comes and articulates a God-given dream or a vision, it's compelling. Here's what I'm telling you today, church. A church either develops from a vision or it will decline towards organizational death. Without a vision, nothing is ever attempted that 
there's not already money in the bank to do. Nothing great's ever attempted for God. Nothing's pursued because it's too big a risk. And the faith factor has been replaced by the motto, nothing ventured, nothing lost. Oh, it takes more than a vision to grow a church. It takes availability. It takes process. But I'm just saying, unless there's a dream, a belief, a passion, a hope, that the church can be and do things, unless that's articulated and believed and embraced, it's unlikely things will ever change. That's the pursuit of unity. Now he gives to us the picture of unity. In verse 2, he uses a couple of similes here, giving us a window into how good and pleasant unity can be. And he first he's using this picture of the anointing of Aaron. And we read in the book of Exodus and Leviticus about the prescribed method of anointing the high priest of God. And as you know, Aaron would be the first high priest. And all the priests that would follow would be descendants of Aaron. But here's the picture. It's a picture of total consecration. This anointing all is running down from his head to his beard on the collar of his priestly robe. This signified holy service to God and belonging in totality to the ministry that he had been called to serve as God's priest. The go-between representing God to men and men to God. And to do that, of course, it required a holiness, a consecration, a sanctification. And here's the deal. Through Jesus Christ, we've been made high priests, kingdom of priests, You see, when Jesus was crucified, what happened to the veil in the temple separating the holy place from the holy of holies? It was torn from the top to the bottom. And Peter would say, now we're a chosen people. We're now a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God. In this Old Testament, the lineage of Aaron, we had priests for the kingdom. Now in the New Testament, we're becoming a kingdom of priests. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. And just like this anointing oil was dripping off the beard of Aaron, we've been giving an anointing as well. It's the Holy Spirit of God who anoints us to live and to serve and to to enable us to do what is right through the power of God's Spirit working within us. And we have a responsibility. We stand between God and people representing who God is to a lost world. We represent what God's grace can do in anyone's life who will believe in the Lord Jesus. Maybe today we need a fresh anointing. Maybe today we need a fresh filling of the Spirit that we might please God in every good work. That we might rightfully demonstrate the grace and the mercy of God available to those who would but believe. And this picture of unity is realized as God's people walk in the Spirit And when we're walking in the Spirit, guess what we'll be doing? We'll be building bridges, not barriers. We will be demonstrating love, not criticism. We'll be offering forgiveness, not seeking retribution or how we can get even. Let's move quickly to the third thing, and that's the problem of unity. What is it that sabotages people from living in harmony? What is it that demolishes the desire and the compatibility in a local church. Undoubtedly, in an overview, it's this. It's selfishness. It really is. It's selfishness. It's meism. It's that I've got to have my preference. I've got to have my way. 
But it's often manifest in three different ways that I want to touch on. The first one relative to a person's pride. A person's pride. Stephen Kendrick in his book, The Love Dare, he, write, he writes, almost every sinful action ever committed can be traced back to a selfish motive. It's a trait we hate in other people, but we find ways to justify it in ourselves. You remember what Paul would write in the book of Philippians chapter 2? He'd say, you can fulfill my joy by being like-minded, by being of the same heart, of being together in this. And then he quickly moves to verse 3. He said, so let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind. Esteem others better than yourself. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And he wraps it up by saying, and let this attitude be in you that's also in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's not pride in the church. Sometimes it's power, which really is the first cousin to pride. This person who wants to be in control, do you ever know anybody that's just a control freak? They have to have the last say. They lobby and campaign for position or authority in the church. They convince themselves they're indispensable, that they're essential, or else the church may be headed for imminent failure, or what in the world is going to happen to this church without me? Can I tell you, the church is bigger than any of us. It's bigger than me, I'll tell you that. You know, speaking in all transparency today, being the founding pastor of a church in Kansas City and seeing what God did there. You know, I'm, I'm moving towards retirement, served there 26 years, and quite honestly, I'm saying, I hope this church can make it without me. <laughs> you know? Believe me, it can make it without me. I'm three years retired now, and the church is doing fine, believe me, because it really wasn't about Steve Dighton. It was built on a foundation that lasts. But you get a person who wants to be in total control, you've got problems on your hands. I love what it says in Romans 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 3. He said, but this I say to everyone who's among you, everyone who's among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think soberly as each man has been dealt a measure of faith. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's power. Thirdly, sometimes it's unforgiveness. Listen, quite frankly, you live in a community with the close relationships that you have in a local church. Guess what happens? Sometimes relationships get strained. Somebody gets their feelings hurt. Somebody misbehaves. And if it lasts long, sides are taken, hurtful words can be spoken, and things can get pretty ugly. And it will stay ugly unless a person or persons can forgive. Here's what I know. If we're going to coexist in a local church, we've got to learn to forgive. Jesus warned us. Matter of fact, whatever measure we're willing to forgive, that's the measure he will forgive us as well. Forgiveness is an act of the will. It's what you choose to do. You don't let your, your feelings drive the act. Forgiveness is willing to cancel the debt, not being retaliatory, not how you can get the last word or how you can get even. Jesus was emphatic about this matter. 
Matter of fact, you remember what he said in, in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember someone has awed against you, leave your gift there and then go to that person, make it right, and then bring your gift back to the altar. And then later in that same Sermon on the Mount, he said, yeah, to the measure that you forgive, it will be measured back to you as well. Lest we forget what he said to the apostle Peter when asked about forgiveness. And Peter said, Lord, what do you want, seven times? He said, no, you've missed it by a mile. I'm talking about 70 times seven. A church that stays unified in oneness of spirit, oneness of heart, oneness in mission, learns to forgive. Let me quit with this. The possibility of unity. We see the pursuit, the picture, the problem, now the possibility. It's in verse 3 because the psalm concludes with another simile here. The picture of the blessings of unity and he compares it to the dew like on Mount Hermon. As you know, this is the highest peak in all of Israel. and It's actually on the border between Israel and Syria. You go to Israel in December and January, it's often a snow, uh, snow-capped peak up there. there. There's actually a ski resort up there on the top of Mount Hermon. But anyhow, obviously, at that elevation, there's more moisture. There's more dew. There, there's more prevalence of uh, and what's so desirable in a, in, in, in a deserty kind of uh, country that you can have an abundance of dew. And here's what he's saying. Look, there's so much dew coming from Hermon. When there's unity in the church, there's going to be fruitfulness. This dew will produce fruitfulness. There will be hydration to make things grow. And unity is like the dew on Hermon descending from the mountain of Zion. So here's the takeaway. When the church is unified, fruitful things occur. Here's what I'm talking about. Fruitfulness and fruit of the Spirit, but fruitfulness relative to making things grow. Because the arid disposition of pride and unforgiveness and vindications and bitterness is no more because love does win out. Peace replaces turmoil and restlessness, and we see this beatitude put in practice. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And there's a happiness and there's a healthiness. That's replaced the bitterness and the animosity. There's a possibility of peace. There's a fruitful time. But then secondly, also, it helps us with our mission and the potential of reaching a lost world when we're we're unified. I think about in John chapter 17, that higher accessory prayer. You remember Jesus would pray on the eve of his crucifixion, Father, may they belong to me and may they be one, even as you and I are one. He's saying, I want them to be unified just like the Godhead is unified. Let these believers be together. And he prays for the church to come. And then he says in verse 23, may they be brought to complete unity that the world may know that you have sent me. You see, that's what he's saying. He said, when the church is one, there's a lost world that will see them. 
And they, 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 it gives great potential and possibility of who can be reached with the gospel. The mercy of God is evident. The salvation available provided in Jesus Christ will be attractive because God's people get along. And it's good to come to church because there's a sweet spirit. There's an anticipation. There's a faith. And we find rest in each other. Because we're together. You'll remember the incident back in January 28th, 1986. The Space Challenger exploded just 73 seconds into its flight. Six astronauts and a school teacher by the name of Krista McCullough died in an instant. The disaster was ultimately blamed on one inexpensive O-ring which cost less than $2. Records reveal that the shuttle consisted of over one million parts, but it only took one failure to destroy the entire mission. Sometimes in church, it's true. We become no stronger than our weakest link. And when there's pride and power plays and selfishness and unforgiveness, and there's disharmony, then problem soon falls. But can I tell you, when we're together in this thing, then God can do some mighty things. I love what it says in the airport in Johannesburg, South Africa. It's an old African proverb that says this, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I'm telling you, as a church, we've got to go far. This is not just about this Sunday. This is about all of eternity. And the things that we deal with in the church are important things. We're talking about eternal life and loving each other as we're commanded to. It's important stuff. Let's walk in unity. Let's walk in love. Let's walk in faithfulness. Let's walk in joy. Let's walk in peace. Let's walk with one heart, one mind, and one spirit. Would you bow your heads with me today? I'm going to ask David to come at this time, and we're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. And this invitation song really is fitting for the message today. Because the thing that really brings unity is not preaching on unity. The, things that, the thing that brings unity is Jesus. And when God's people fall in love with Jesus, and we turn our eyes upon him, as the song says, the things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I've said this many times. Preach Jesus, it brings unity. And I'm simply saying to you today, when our hearts are right and Jesus is living out his life within us, then indeed we'll be a unified church. Lord, I pray now during this invitation time as we sing this song of invitation and make an appeal to those that are here, I pray if there's any here first that know you not in the free pardon of sin that they would come and give their heart to you today. I pray that they would have an awakening 
the, to the darkness of their own heart and soul and desire something better. And that better is not something, it's someone. It's only found in Jesus. I pray they'd come home to you today. If there's other here, others here today that maybe there's been some unforgiveness in their heart, maybe they haven't seen themselves as the problem, but they've come to realize they can only deal with themselves, not everyone else. And they've decided to let it begin in them. Maybe just coming to pray with someone who's here at the front would solidify their feelings, help them to move forward. There may be a hundred who come today. But the issue is not how many will come. The issue is, has God spoken to your heart about something that needs to, to be different, that may need to change? I'm going to pray a prayer. We're going to stand to our feet. We're going to sing this hymn of invitation. I've spoke to you today about an issue. Why don't you come and respond in a public way? Father in heaven, this is your invitation. I thank you for this precious church, and I thank you for the, the saints of God who have faithfully stood as a banner of faithfulness to you in a church called Hoffman Town. And I pray today as we seek to move forward in a right, effective, God-honoring way that you would help us to link our hearts, to keep our eyes on you, that you could bless us once again. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me now? Let's sing this hymn of invitation. Staff's here at the front. If you'd like to come, pray a prayer with them. That'd be awesome. Let's sing. Let's worship the Lord together through singing this invitation hymn. Oh, so are you weary and troubled? David, you lead us. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and life for a Church, let's sing this together. Let's hear you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. 
goes on in the month of May and there's always things to pull us away from church I get that and, and I understand uh, I'm a grandpa as well and grandkids do a lot of stuff I try to be at most of them I can as well so I understand uh, the nature of that but I, I hope you'll covet with me during these summer months unless providentially hindered you'd, you'd come and be at church and let's worship together and let's grow together this summer it's, it's not an unproductive de, uh, time of, of the year. Some people kind of get it in their mind, well, it's summer months, we can expect to be down or whatever. I'm not expecting that. <laughs> I'm expecting to see a church full of people. And, uh, and Mary and I, we look forward in anticipation week in and week out to be with you. And we're already having affinity and love for this church. And so, anyhow, all that to say, I, I hope to see you often this summer. And I know these are going to be good days for us. All right, I'm going to pray a quick blessing. And David, we got anything else? Tim, anything else before we go? No, but we're going to let you and Miss Mary go oh, that's out right. to the yeah. foyer after. You, you can go ahead and pray. Okay. And then uh, you guys can go first. All right, we're going right out this door right over there. I think that's Susan. I can see her shadow over there waving at me. <laughs> uh, and have a, a little meet and greet time. And uh, we haven't had a chance to meet a lot of you. So you come and say hello to Mary and I, and uh, we, we look forward to doing that. Father, thank you for this day. I pray that you've been honored in your church. I pray you'd help us as we have privilege now to stand and at this sacred desk, this pulpit, and say, thus saith the Lord. Help me to stay on task with what you've impressed upon my heart. Help me to dig deep in the Word of God that I could bring a biblical message to a people who love the Word of God. And I pray for each one that's here today. Help us to play our part. We may feel like an inexpensive O-ring, but God, we're important in the body of Christ. I pray we understand that relative to the importance we are in your body. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you for being here. See you, see you over here shortly.